Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart podcast, keeping you healthy and pain-free. And this is podcast number 152. And in this podcast, we are going to talk about the relationship of the athletic trainer to the physical therapist. This was discussed last week on an interesting thread on Twitter. Um, and I'm really excited to explore this relationship a little bit more today in this podcast. Um, and before we get started, just wanted to give everyone a quick update that the Strictly Business Virtual Conference is uh, still in its early bird rate. So if you go to healthywealthysmart.com, you can uh, still take advantage of the early bird rate until May 5th. And for all you students listening, the student rate is always $99. That's never going to change. Uh, the conference so far has been getting some really great feedback from people who have purchased and who are going through it. And I'm also really excited to say that it is uh, now part of the Leadership Institute uh, within the Rwandan Physical Therapy Association. Um, so that the physical therapists who are deemed leaders in their community in Rwanda are now using this as part of their education. So I'm really, really excited to, to uh, announce that today. So if you want to learn more about the business side of physical therapy, uh, take, take a look at healthywealthysmart.com. And uh, it was really fun to do. One of my guests today is actually part of the conference. Um, so uh, go to healthywealthysmart.com and check it out. Okay, so back to, back to today. So like I said, we're gonna be talking about uh, physical therapy and athletic training, bit of a hot topic. And to help me go through this interview, because I am the only one who's not the, an athletic trainer, I have physical therapist and athletic trainer, Ann Wendell, physical therapist and athletic trainer, Mike Ryan, and athletic trainer, Mike Hopper. So uh, instead of me going through and reading your, your uh, lengthy intros, I will have you guys introduce yourself. So Mike Ryan, why don't we start with you, kind of give everyone a little bit, a quick intro on you. Great, thank you, Karen. Thanks for having me on your show. Um, I just retired last February, uh, previous February of 2014 from the Jacksonville Jaguars. I was an athletic trainer and physical therapist in the NFL for 26 years. And now I serve as the sports medicine analyst for Sunday Night Football and NBC Sports. And also have a, a physical therapy clinic and uh, do a lot of public speaking um, in the Jacksonville area and, and around the country. So that's my background. I'm excited to be on board. Awesome. And Anne, uh, go ahead. And I mean, she was just on the podcast last time, but go ahead and introduce yourself again. Starting to, <laughs> starting to feel like a regular. Um, yeah, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for asking me. And I think this is a great topic. Um, I uh, am a certified athletic trainer and also physical therapist. I got into athletic training because um, I always wanted to be a physical therapist, but um, I'm old enough that I was caught in that transition from when the uh, physical therapy went from a bachelor's degree to a master's degree and suddenly found myself in need of an undergraduate degree to get and uh, was fortunate enough to have an older cousin who was a certified athletic trainer and she introduced me to it and brought me into the training room and I just fell in love with it. So I've been in ATC for 23 years and a PT for 17 years um, and 
worked in all kinds of different settings and just excited to talk about this, uh, this topic today. Great. And Mike Hopper, give a little intro for yourself, please. Uh, thanks, Karen. Uh, I am a, a certified athletic trainer here at Bishop Lynch High School in Dallas, Texas. Um, I am in my first year here in, in Texas, coming from Southern Illinois. Um, I have both a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in athletic training, and I spent the first uh, seven years of my career actually working in a PT clinic. Great. So it's it's I, I like the panel here. We've got a pretty diverse uh, crowd of athletic trainers and myself, a non-athletic trainer. Um, I am just a PT. Uh, anyway, um, let's so let's get started. Uh, like I said, this kind of all started um, via a, a thread on Twitter. And I think the first thing I'd like to talk about is the relationship between the physical therapist and the certified athletic trainer. So in your, in your opinion, you guys, is there a good working relationship between the, the PT and the ATC? So I think, Mike Hopper, I'd like to start with you, uh, just because you're, you're not a physical therapist. So what do you feel the relationship is between and, and of course, you know, there's good and bad of everything, but let's kind of take an overall view between the PT and the athletic trainer. You know, um, I really feel like um, the, the uh, relationship between the two professions is quite a bit different at the, at the state and national level than it is at the individual level. At the individual level, I do feel like athletic trainers and PTs tend to work well together. Um, and, you know, in large part, like I said, I worked for a PT clinic for seven years and, uh, many of the PTs that I worked with under, at least tried to understand the relation or the, um, the education of the athletic trainer and what we had to bring to the table and, and vice versa, you know, the athletic trainers understood that there were certain things we were not capable of that our, that our physical therapists were. And so, um, I do believe that, like I said, at the individual level, the relationship can be a very good working relationship in, in most cases. And, and Mike, coming from, so your background with the Jacksonville Jaguars, what is the relationship like at that high, I mean, that's sort of the highest athletic level one can, can get to. So what is the relationship there between the PT and the ATC? I think it's an interesting one. For the longest time, I was the only head athletic trainer in the league that had physical therapy in my title. Yet there was five of us that were head athletic trainers that were also physical therapists. So I think for the longest time, ATC PTs and the NFL just want to kind of wave the flag that they're a, phys a athletic trainer, but not really claim that they're a physical therapist, which I thought was, was a problem because obviously the expertise on both sides of it has a lot of upside. After the latest CBA, which is a collecting bargain agreement, which is basically the contract between the NFL players and the NFL itself. When that new contract went into place about three years ago, part of those new rules stated that every NFL team had to have a full-time physical therapist on staff, which obviously I thought was a great thing because it opened up a lot of opportunities for physical therapists. It showed the value of what physical therapists could do. So every team that didn't have a physical therapist, I think it was a total, including assistants. At that point, there were 12 physical therapists in the NFL that were part of the staff and all of them were ATC PTs. 
So I think since then, it's kind of everybody's kind of pulled back the curtain and realized, hey, physical therapists have a great role in that. But it doesn't understate the fact that a lot of athletic trainers in that situation that were responsible for the rehab under the direction of the team physician did a wonderful job of rehab. So I think it's a roundabout way of saying that the relationship between NFL athletic trainers and NFL physical therapists now is very good. But I think for the longest time, regardless of the setting, I almost saw it as like stepbrothers. It could be a great relationship or it could be a bad relationship. Mm. But I think the more they understand of what the specialties are of each one, instead of looking at their adversaries and it's more of a turf war, I think the nice thing about in a professional sports setting is the objectives are very clear. There's no billing concerns. There's no who's working what hours. The sole objective is to get athletes healthy, is to screen for injuries, prevent injuries, and keep people on the field in a healthy manner by utilizing physical therapists, not just medications. So I think with that sole objective being singular in a sense, everybody gets along, athletic trainer, physical therapist combined. So I, I think it's a real healthy one now, but there has been some growing pains over the last um, eight to 10 years. Mm. And Anne, what is what is your take? You know, I know you, like you said, you've been an athletic trainer for quite some time. Um, so what is your take on that relationship? Well, it's interesting because I haven't worked um, as an athletic trainer for you know probably the 17 years since I became a PT because I was working in a hospital and other other um, mm-hmm. settings. Um, when I, it's interesting when I first started working as an athletic trainer. If I was in my high school or college setting, I was able to do everything that I had been trained as an athletic trainer to do, um, assessing and treating modalities, all of that sort of thing. But when I was in the clinic functioning as an athletic trainer, I couldn't even turn on an electric stim machine. Only the PTs could do that, mm. um, unless it was one of my high school or college athletes who came in, and then I was able to to treat them as I would in a training room in that setting. So, you know, I know that things have changed over the years, but um, I really think there's maybe a lack of understanding uh, for PTs of what the training um, to become an athletic trainer is actually like and the education and especially the education and training we get for handling on-field emergencies. Um, You know, that can't be understated. And I didn't get any of that in my physical therapy program. Now, granted, we had complementary things looking at concussions and, you know, rehab and treatment and things like that. Um, but I think there's a lot to be said for the athletic trainer as the uh, immediate on-field, um, you know, first responder, as well as continuing that care into the clinic. Um, and I think that we can all work together really well on that. Uh, we can't isolate ourselves into different groups here and fight over it. You know, we all kind of have to figure out how to work best together. Well, now let's talk a little bit more about the educational part of uh, the athletic trainer. Um, You all are obviously certified as athletic trainers. Mike Hopper, I know you have your bachelor's and your master's. I think when a lot of people hear athletic trainer, I think that they view the, they forget about the certified athletic part and just think trainer kind of like what you would go to your local gym and hire a trainer so let's talk a little bit more about the educational background that goes into being an athletic trainer so um i'll i'll mike uh ryan do you want to kind of start off a little bit and then we'll kind of go down the the line here as to what exactly goes into becoming an, an athletic trainer 
Sure. And I like what Ann said is the fact that really the background in the education of athletic trainers really don't get enough recognition. It's, it's a recognized specialty profession under the American Medical Association. And uh, for the longest time, other than this last CBA, uh, with the NFL perspective, a certified athletic trainer was on, the only mandated employee that the NFL required every team to have. And I think that that gives us some merit based on that educa- educational component. But it's typically a four-year degree. There's extensive hours, hands-on hours they have to work on. I know mean, when I was in school, you had to have 1,800 hours to become eligible to sit for the exam itself. I think now it's down to about 800 hours. But they're very specific, very controlled. The curriculums are, are very solid both in the clinical setting, the hands-on experience, the educational component. Um, there, there is a little bit of a PR concern with athletic trainers because, like you said earlier, Karen, is the term trainer. And really, athletic trainers, certified athletic trainers, are trying to get away from that because when you say trainer, it could be a boxing trainer, personal trainer, horse trainer. It's a general term that really doesn't give a lot of um, recognition to the skills and the value of what they do. But I can just say that the education on athletic trainers is only getting better. And there's a lot there from like Ann said, as far as the first responder component, the hands-on quality, do they have the background in true in-depth physical therapy that a physical therapist has? Absolutely not. But a lot of those emergency preventative measures and skills that they bring to an athletic training room, a uh, clinical setting are very, very valuable. And, And I think that recognition of everybody realizing it, I think that's what's going to help the uh, the reputation and the working rapport between certified athletic trainers and physical therapists in, in every setting. Yeah, and Mike Hopper, so you're probably the youngest one of the bunch here. So um, how has your, listening to what Mike just said, uh, do you feel like the education that you got is kind of the same or or how would, or how has it maybe grown or changed over the years? Well, I don't know about Mike or Ian as far as what their program um, was specifically, but in 2003, the um, Commission on the Accreditation of Athletic Training Education, or CADE, and the Board of Certification for Athletic Trainers um, changed the way our education is done. We used to have what what they termed as an internship route where the um, didactic portion may not be um, all that uh, standardized, but you had to get, like Mike said, 1,800 hours or 2,000 hours of of hands-on experience in the athletic training room and and on the sidelines and things like that. But in 2003, they did away with that internship route, and now in order to sit for the BOC exam, you have to – graduate from an accredited program. So I graduated uh, in 2010 with my bachelor's. So I graduated from an accredited program in 2010 and sat for the BOC exam that year. Um, And so, you know, I'm sure that a lot of the education itself is the same, but there's actually some concern that the hands-on component has actually taken a step backwards, uh, which is a great concern to a lot of athletic trainers as we continue to fight for greater abilities, I guess you could say, or uh, you know, may, maybe more freedom, is that we have a lot of the older athletic trainers saying that our new athletic trainers coming out do not have the hands-on experience to be successful. 
at the same time, the didactic requirements have increased drastically. Um, even since I graduated, they have gone up. And, and right now, there's a big controversy as to whether we actually need to move to a graduate level and, and move into an entry-level master's degree. Got it. So, so, you know, from what I'm hearing from you guys, it's really important for people to know that the athletic trainer is, like Mike said, he's not a personal trainer, it's not a boxing trainer, but the athletic trainer uh, has to have uh, at least uh, a four-year degree, if not going into a master's degree, and has to sit for board examinations in order to practice. Correct. If I could add something to that, Karen, yeah, I sure. think it's... The, the overall summary of that is, um, as Mike and Ann can tell as well, is it basically is a four-year, they have to have a four-year degree in a science-based uh, sports medicine type degree. Mm -hmm. There's a little wiggle room there. Could it be biology? Could it be physical education? There's a lot of different things within that that they can kind of have. But in addition to that four-year degree, they have to have the sports medicine classes that are clearly listed. They have to have the science background. They have to have basic first aid. They have to have the CPR. They have to have the um, number of hours under a certified athletic trainer. Mm -hmm. And all that is just to qualify them to take the test. And then the test is pretty extensive and obviously you have to pass that. Just like physical therapy, there's ongoing CEUs. So uh -huh. when people kind of look at athletic training, it's a little ambiguous because it's not clear cut. Where in physical therapy, you have a class of whatever, 30, 35, and uh -huh. you do every class together. Athletic training, much like other degrees, has a little bit more wiggle room, but at the end of the day, they have to have all those set requirements from the education to the sports medicine background to the sports medicine experience, and then they have to sit for the certification exam. So hopefully that gives a little bit more clarity of um, what's required for athletic trainers. So obviously it's, it's, it's quite extensive. Yeah, it sounds, it, it is quite extensive. Yeah, go ahead. And I would love to talk about the certification exam for a second here, sure. um, and you guys can back me up on this. I have never been so nervous for something in my entire life. I mean, the, you know, the stories you hear about what the exam was going to be like, and then I just remember, you know, being this 20-something-year-old person sitting there, you know, waiting for the exam. So there are actually... I don't know if it's still this way, because like I said, it's been a while, but when I took it, there were three components to the exam. The first was the written exam. Um, so you all sat together in a big, you know, lecture hall kind of a thing and, and took the written exam, which was really tough. I mean, it wasn't a joke. It kind of covered everything you learned in those four years. And then um, there was a written simulation portion where you would go through with a highlighter and so you'd answer the question, you know, you come into the locker room and you find an athlete down on the ground. What's the first thing you do? And so you highlight it. It used to be like those magic pen kind of things and the yeah. words appear. And so you kind of keep going. And if you make the wrong decision, it's like uh, that was wrong and the athlete is dead. You know, <laughs> it was, you know I mean, it, it would take you through the whole scenario. And so as you're doing that, people are getting called out for the practical portion of the exam. And so I just remember you get called out and someone escorts you up in the elevator and you're trying not to throw up in the elevator because you're so nervous. And you come into this room and you have to pick, um, I think it was two or three situations, you had to pick a card. And I just remember one of mine was, um, you're covering a high school football game, an athlete goes down on the field um, from a hard collision, go, basically. And you had to do the entire assessment of what you would do start to finish with the athlete, with three people looking on and, um, you know, your, your patient or your, your athlete on the field. 
And I mean, that was much, much more difficult and more stressful than PT boards, I have to say. Mm. Um, I and, and I left there feeling like, you know, if I pass this, I'm really sure that I know what I'm doing because there, there was no fooling around there. Um, and I don't know if they still run it exactly the same way, but man, that was a brutal day of testing. I, I agree. Yeah, and I had the same scenario with those three scenarios. And, and I just thought from a practical point of view of knowing your stuff and having to prove it, not just on paper, but in experience, uh, I thought it was a great experience. I thought it was very nerve wracking, but um, I know I was well prepared for going through that scenario because in emergency situations, that's how things uh, play out. And Mike Hopper, you're, you, you're, like I said before, took it more, more recently. So is, did you have the same experience? No, they have eliminated most of that. And the BOC exam now is 175 questions on the computer. You have four hours. Um, to complete it and so there is no practical component mm. or or any kind of written simulation or anything like that um it's my understanding that it's all on the computer now because that is what most of the other medical professions have moved to mm -hmm. and so the boc moved to that as well interesting yeah, I heard the same thing. interesting i wonder is that is that good or bad what are your thoughts on that and anyone can jump in on this one. I just like, I think in athletic training, you could be watching a practice one minute and someone's unconscious or a possible neck injury, cardiac injury. Things happen very quickly in an athletic mm -hmm. training setting. So mm -hmm. I think to be able to have the ability to uh, respond quickly and do the right thing when, when it's literally a life and death situation with no heads up, here it comes. Um, I think exams that test that kind of procedure and those kind of skills. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm a big fan of it because that's what's uh, that's what could save lives. But who am I to question with the BOC and all the things they put into? It? I know they put great effort into it, but sure. personally, I, I think testing you and your response and your ability to do so in that setting, I think it's always a good thing. Cool. Well, it's definitely. I would agree, and uh, I would just agree. But um, you know, add to that that um, we were tested all the way through our program, so there were practical exams for every single mm -hmm. thing we learned. Mm -hmm. So even though they might have done away with that on the large scale for the um, certification exam, which I agree with Mike, I think that was a really important part of it, but I can understand the switch to the computer. Um, but, you know, just to say that we were tested on everything all the way through, we were very familiar with practical exams and also we're out on the field as student athletic trainers accumulating those, you know, 1800 hours. So our instructors knew whether or not we were prepared based on our, our real time, real life um, responses to things at practices and games. Right. So I mean, uh, I would agree. go ahead. Um, you know, uh, both Ann and Mike both talked about having the scenario of the, um, the C-spine injury on the football field as part of their certification exam. And, you know, I guess fortunately for me, uh, not so fortunate for the athlete, I guess. But um, as one of my internships, I actually did that before I even had signed up to take the certification exam. You know, so I think that the experiences that we get are, are very critical to everything. And so the internship and the hands-on experience can really help make up for that if we have the right hands-on experience. 
Got it. So it sounds to me, and I hope that people listening can appreciate the amount of work that goes in to becoming a certified athletic trainer and, and that it, it is different than the, the trainer at the gym. And I think a lot of people in the general public um, probably didn't really know how much work goes into it and how extensive the program is. So I thank you all for kind of clearing that up. Um, so now let's talk about, you know, we were talking about the athletic trainer as, you know, on the field in that sports medicine setting or in the, you know, at the time of an athletic event uh, and, and in, the, in the locker room, that kind of stuff. But is there a place for athletic trainers in other settings? Um, and I know then we'll sort of talk, we'll go into the billing and things like that, which can maybe be a little controversial. But in your opinion, what do you feel like there is a role for the athletic trainer across all, all rehab settings, not just the sports medicine setting or not just the on-field stuff? And I'll, anyone can kind of jump in here. I'll go with, uh, you know, I, I'll go with Anne first since you're sort of uh, in the rehab setting solely at this point. But do you feel that in your practice setting, the addition of an athletic trainer would enhance your clinical setting? Well, I do. And so, I mean, it, that's, that's a different question than are athletic trainers, you know, ready to be in every setting. So let's talk about the first one first. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you know, I, I think, you know, we've established so far in the discussion that our training and expertise um, has prepared us definitely to work with with patients and um, also to rehabilitate patients. So, you know, I worked for several years before I went back to physical therapy school as an athletic trainer covering um, high schools and colleges and also in the clinic. And I think uh, there's, there's a huge difference between um, the kind of care a, a certified athletic trainer can offer in the clinic versus a tech or an aide or PT aide or something like that. Um, so even for maybe more of your neurological injuries or things like that, um, neurological conditions, an athletic trainer is still more prepared than, um, you know, someone who is just being trained on the job, clearly. Mm -hmm. um, I would argue, you know, that athletic trainers can be beneficial in, in every setting because we understand exercise and movement and rehab. Um, I... I felt like coming out of physical therapy school that I had much more preparation for working with patients having gone through the athletic training program. Mm -hmm. And I did start my career um, as a physical therapist working in inpatient and outpatient neuro rehab and acute care. And I felt like my training on the field and my ability to deal with emergencies was really enhanced by that emergency training that I had received. So um, I wasn't as nervous as a new PT grad going into an acute care room, you know, with thinking about, okay, the patient might, um, might code, they might go unconscious. You know, I, I've always been able to deal with those situations. Um, I think, you know, it may be more appropriate in some settings than others. Um, I, I don't know that if you haven't gone to physical therapy school that you should be working as an athletic trainer, um, you know, in a rehab hospital, but yet you could be functioning in the position as a PT extender in some of those situations and still be doing a better job um, and a much better 
ally in the treatment of the patient than just you're you're a regular person off the street who's getting trained on the job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And and how about you, uh, Mike? Mike Ryan, we'll go Mike Ryan first. Uh, I agree, and I think the the personalities of these individuals have almost as much to do with the education in particular settings, especially clinical settings, uh, because how they work with people, how they interact with people, I think is key. And as athletic trainers, you're used to dealing with, like in the NFL setting, the guys get out of a meeting, they have an hour and a half free before they go back into meetings. I'll have 22 to 25 guys come in for treatment in an hour and a half before they go back into meetings. That's that's a very different setting than someone coming in from a clinical setting that's coming in one every 20 minutes or one every 30 minutes. So that triage ability and that skill of multitasking and focusing on that with, with the staff and how they all work, work together, I think is one of the strengths that athletic trainers bring. But obviously from that, like I said earlier, the in-depth physical therapy rehabilitation skills, physical therapists obviously would have the upper hand on those particular uh, use modalities and skills. But I think it really comes down to what is the setup in that particular setting mm-hmm. and using those athletic trainers with their specialties, maybe under the supervision of a physical therapist in conjunction with physical therapists, I think is really the best benefit because it's not all or none. It's not the sense that it's only physical therapists and no one else, or obviously it wouldn't be all athletic trainers. So I think using the strengths of those skills, having the personality um, issues, the communication between all of them, is really going to create a scenario where it's the, the best interest of the play, the patient, be that a professional player or whether it be a workers' comp issue, pediatric, geriatrics. I think them all working together in that, like I said, the communication skills of utilizing those strengths is what's going to be the best scenario. So I think long-winded answer saying, yes, athletic trainers do belong in a clinical setting if the situation is right and the objectives are in line. Yeah, and Mike Hopper, so you had you spent time working in a PT clinic, is that correct? Yes. Yes. So, you know, what was your experience working in the clinic? And is it something that you would advocate for other uh, uh, athletic trainers? So, um, like I said, I worked in a clinic for seven years, and uh, part of that time was spent as an athletic trainer. Part of that time was spent um, as a, quote-unquote, uneducated tech, Uh because I actually started in the clinic uh, right out of high school. So basically, I worked for the clinic all through my undergraduate school and um, and through grad school. Uh, so I, I was actually there for three and a half years as an athletic trainer. But in large part, we worked together really with, with so many of our patients, as young as you know, eight and 10, all the way as old as, as in their in their 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, as a as a collaborative effort with the PT, the PTA, and the AT working together to not only get that person back to whatever activity they wanted to get back to, but to some sort of uh, more active lifestyle. Because the clinic I worked in also had a fitness center attached to it. And so we used the fitness center in conjunction with the PT clinic to develop those uh, those relationships to the PT and uh, and fitness benefit, but also to help that patient, like I said, with that active lifestyle. And for the last two years that I was there, I actually ran a kettlebell class, um, just as an exercise, you know, offering for our mm-hmm. for our fitness members. But really, it was 
it was truly that crossover between physical therapy and fitness and that my kettlebell class was all female all over the age of 60, which is a population that you would not expect athletic trainers to be working with um, or for that, that individual, for those individuals to ever think about considering to pick up a kettlebell. But, you know, I think it was important that we, like I said, we worked as a team in everything that we did. And sometimes I'm sure that we were allowed to do things as athletic trainers that may or may not have always been um, in line with billing purposes or mm-hmm. in line with uh, what the APTA may think of as, as skilled physical therapy. But we did it for the benefit of the patient, and it seemed to work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's I, I, I think it's interesting what that clinic did in sort of utilizing the athletic trainer to bring in a, a, a cash program to that clinic in, in the kettlebell class or in, in any sort of like group uh, strengthening classes and things like that. So I think that's a really interesting way to, to utilize uh, the athletic trainer in, in a way that can help to perhaps transition that patient from their skilled physical therapy into more of a fitness or a strengthening program. So I think that's a really smart way to do it. Um, here, I have a question for you guys. This came up earlier this year. There was, there's a, uh, a guy out in California who, was, who had started a program. He's a mathematician and started a program for uh, professional athletes whereby the physical therapist, so the, the doctor and the physical therapist were considered the coordinator of all care. And they would have sort of final say on programs, on strengthening programs, on what, what, this, what the client should be doing. And then the athletic trainers uh, were, were there to kind of carry out the program. They had input into the program. If things needed to be changed, they brought it to the attention of the PT, but the PT had the ultimate say, the ultimate coordinator of care. So a lot of athletic trainers felt like this sort of took away the job of the athletic trainer in this scenario. And so I was just wondering what your thoughts are on that. And is Mike Ryan, is that how things are run in the NFL at this point? If every NFL team needs a PT, is that, is the PT the coordinator of care and everything else falls around it or work? Typically not. Everything kind of goes under the direction of a physician, the team orthopedic surgeon in most cases is going to be the team physician. So they kind of oversee what's there, but typically the head athletic trainer being a physical therapist or an athletic trainer uh-huh. um, would kind of have, uh, I'd say the um, handle on the direction of the care itself. But okay. the nice thing about that particular setting is you're only focusing on, we go to camp with about 80 guys. The regular roster is about 53 practice squad injury reserve. You're somewhere in that 60 to 65 range. So it's a somewhat of a manageable uh, number of athletes compared to a college setting where you may have 28 or 30 different sports. So there's a uh-huh. lot more athletes in, in the hopper, so to speak with what, uh, what takes care of I think that the key in, in a setting, a scenario like that, and I've not heard of that until you just described that, but uh-huh. I think to have one specialty overseeing and the other one implementing the care itself, I think that hierarchy of that scenario compared to having open communication, I think in most cases doesn't really 
project to having ideal care of getting everybody's expertise. Uh, perfect example, I was the president of the um, PFAS, which is a professional football athletic trainer society, all the athletic trainers in the NFL. I was a president of their research and education foundation for 14 years. In one year, we did a quick survey in all the athletic trainers in the NFL. This was probably about five years ago. And all the athletic trainers in the NFL and physical therapists had a total of 1,009 years of NFL sports medicine experience. And think about that, but over a thousand years, think of how many ankles, think of how many unique injuries, how many rehab protocols. Sure. So to not tap into that kind of thousand years worth of experience uh-huh. and, and to put yourself in a little box and say, this person knows best for everyone, I think you're losing the value of having great communication, great expertise, no matter what those letters are behind your name. I think getting that kind of experience into the, uh, the decision process to apply that kind of care I think goes a long way. And I think that's what you see in most athletic training rooms in the NFL. Great communication, openness, not afraid to bring in second opinions and bring in specialists to say, hey, if this person knows something I don't, mm-hmm. and it's going to make my athlete that much healthier, go ahead and do it. Because you got to realize with these professional athletes, they all have an agent. They usually all have financial advisors. They all have dialogue with other people and other teams. I've been rehabbing people on the table in an athletic training room in the NFL and having the player text a player, a friend of his from another team with the exact same injury, and they're comparing treatments at the exact moment. Mm. So that open communication, if you're, not, if you're not up to speed, you're not doing the right kind of things, and you're not applying the kind of state-of-the-art care for those players, they know it now. They know it right away. And if not, they're going to bring someone in who's going to do it, or they're going to take you out of that setting and send you across the country to someone that can take care of that particular problem. So you better be on the up and up and you better have that open communication with everybody, including the athletes or agents, even their wives. And when you talk about NFL players, their wives, they're studying. They're going home and look at the Google. I had a player one time I had a hernia issue. He came in the next day and said, hey, I watched nine hernia surgeries on YouTube last night. And I was thinking about getting this procedure and that procedure. Be it right or wrong, they're very much involved with their care. And I think you're, the kind of communication and the kind of um, scenario has set up with everybody putting that interest into it, that better be in place or someone's going to know it in a hurry. Got it. Got it. And how about Mike or Ann? Any thoughts on that? They want to piggyback on what Mike said? Well, I think yeah, going back to... Of, oh, go ahead, Ann. Oh, I think going back to, you know, that model that you were describing, Yeah. Um, you know, regardless of, of who is in charge, what we're talking about there is, you know, innovative care models, right? And so if I think the crux of the issue for, for PTs is if we keep trying to um, stand up above everyone and say that we're the only musculoskeletal experts or we're the best musculoskeletal experts, we're creating division um, among the people who could be helping us, whether it's as an extender or as an equal, as a colleague, whatever to give the best care to patients. And what patients want is to get better at a cost they can afford. So we need to start thinking as a PT profession, I think about um, more innovative care models. And so if we can get past you know, the fact of, is it a PT running it? Is it an ATC? Is it a physician? Um, what provides the best care to patients at, at the best price, really? I mean, we're talking about good quality evidence-based care at a price patients can afford. Um, you know, and this, I always get started on the topic of telemedicine, but that's where we're headed with this stuff 
is being able to provide care to patients who might not otherwise be able to afford it or to um, get someplace, you know, if they're in a rural area and things like that. And I think the more, like Mike said, the more we can communicate and work together as a team, the best outcome for the patient. Um, and I think that's what we need to keep, you know, at the forefront here, whether it's a professional athlete, a high school athlete, um, 60 year old female who's taking part of a kettlebell program, we want the best care for our patients. Mm -hmm. And um, we need to, to find some more models of care that allow that. Go ahead, Mike. Hopper. You know, um, <laughs> so I, I remember reading that article, and it's actually a couple years old, I believe. Yeah, I think it, um, it yeah. 2000, 2012, 2013, something like that. Yeah. But, um, you know, it was, I, I'll be honest, I hated the article. Um, and you'll, you'll find my comments in there multiple times. Um, but, um, you know, it's important to recognize that that was written in California. Mm -hmm. California is the only state in the country where athletic training is not recognized as a healthcare profession. Ah, and California is the only, California is the only state that does not require some sort of regulation for athletic trainers. Hmm. Um, and, um, you know, but in, in all the other states and all 49 other states and, and also in the District of Columbia, an athletic trainer practices under the direction of a, of a licensed physician. Uh -huh. And so, um, you know, I think it's important that we recognize that as a, um, as a qualifier sometimes with, with PTs trying to be above athletic trainers. I think we have to recognize that you know, legally, that's not the case, uh, just like chiropractors. You know, mm -hmm. chiropractors have tried to do the same thing, and they legally cannot be the team physician um, overseeing an athletic trainer either. But I do believe that model can work. You know, like, like they talked about working together is the most important thing that we yep. do. Um, more hands-on, more, more people that, you know, have their hands in, in a specific case is is very important uh for all of our all of our patients um you know here down down here i am the head athletic trainer at at a high school you know medically my boss is my team physician mm -hmm. and then we have a couple of chiropractors that are a couple of uh, physical therapists sorry that i work with and we are working to develop a relationship with a chiropractor right now um but really as the athletic trainer i am the only one that out of any of these that see the kids every single day. And so being able to make those um, on the field assessments and also mm -hmm. in the athletic training room, evaluating every single day, seeing those changes, you know, then communicating that with the doctors and communicating that with the physical therapist is, um, is important for our athletes every day. Yeah, absolutely. So it, it sounds to me, and, and of course this goes without saying in any, uh, healthcare setting or clinical setting that the communication amongst everyone involved is the key to the betterment and the health of the client or of the patient, regardless of whether that person is an NFL athlete or like, like we said, a 60 year old woman doing kettlebells or a, a 13 year old tennis player in a high school. Right. So I think that seems to be the most important thing. Now we're going to, 
touch on this briefly. We sort of talked about it a little bit uh, before, but the including the athletic trainer as a PT extender for billing purposes. Um, what, and we sort of talked a little bit about this before the interview, before we started recording. So Anne, I'll kind of go to you first. Um, is this something that physical therapy clinics should consider, could do? Um, at this point, I, I, I know that they, they cannot, but do you think in the future, this is something that could be a, a good idea? So this topic obviously will open up a huge can of worms, which is what I was joking about before. Um, what, what I know, and I was just doing some research on the National Athletic Trainers Association website, the NATA. Um, what, I guess it, it kind of started, and Mike uh, Hopper alluded to this before we started recording, that um, because Medicare doesn't recognize athletic trainers as covered providers, that's what kind of started the, um, the inability to bill. Um, you know, for services. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, what, what I found out just looking through this was basically um, it, it's going to take a change in the statutes um, for athletic trainers to be able to bill uh, Medicare. Got it. Um, because most, most third-party payers tend to, for better or worse, mostly worse, follow what Medicare does, um, <laughs> a lot of third-party payers do not want to reimburse for services provided by athletic trainers in the clinic. Um, although you can bill for services provided by an athletic trainer in the clinic. Mm. So it, it's a matter of, um, I think, the contracts that are negotiated with third-party payers mm. and, um, you know, the kind of the rules and regulations and things like that. Um, and it, there's no guarantee for payment for any services. So I think, you know, that goes to kind of individual clinics having to, to figure out if they're going to get paid for, for those services. I think in order to be safe, most clinics have decided that they can't bill for athletic trainer services. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, I, know, I know that when, I mean, that was a while ago, but when I worked in a clinic, we couldn't bill for any services provided by me. But, you know, this kind of goes back to the care extenders um, dialogue that, you know, we've already established the education and training and testing that goes into being a certified athletic trainer um, we're not able to bill for time spent in the clinic, yet our physical therapy assistants are looked at as co-equals in, in most cases, except for things like TRICARE and things like that, um, with billing for physical therapy services. So mm -hmm. when I go back to thinking about providing the most appropriate care to get patients better at the lowest cost, maybe there is a place for athletic trainers um, services being billed for in the clinic. I don't know. I don't make those kind of decisions, and I know there's a lot of controversy over it. Yeah. But I don't think it's a matter of whether or not athletic trainers are qualified to provide those services, because clearly, in especially a sports medicine setting, they are. We've established that. Yeah. Um, I think it's it's just going to take a matter of you know changing statutes and and things like that. But you know, when you think about it, um, the reason physical therapists have issues is because we're not considered providers uh, under Medicare. True. And so we're all fighting the same battle and it kind of starts with Medicare. Um, you know, if those statutes were changed um, to basically provide physician, um, 
I'm forgetting the wording, but physician status, I think it is with Medicare. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the only two people who don't have it are chiropractors and therapists. Mm-hmm. And so everyone working under a physician um, is covered because the physician is directing the care. So I don't know if there's, there's got to be some way to work on this. I don't mm-hmm. know if it's a good idea, a bad idea, but clearly athletic trainers in certain settings are trained and prepared to work with patients. And it sounds to me like Mike Ryan in the NFL setting, that's exactly what they're doing. Exactly. And they're working under the physician, open communication. I know I keep beating that word to death, but everybody's in the same page with what they're working, but it's it's all under the direction of a physician. Uh-huh. And athletic trainers and physical therapists alike kind of work uh, hand in hand and deal with that. And depending on the setting, they may select certain players they're working with, or if it's more of a neurological issue, that may fall into the priorities and more of the physical therapist compared to some of the acute care orthopedic issues that the athletic trainers would handle. But much like any other setting, they're kind of set up to allow those specialties and those skills uh, to be worked with the individual patients uh, based on their injuries under the direction of a physician. Right. And obviously, you know, the NFL world is different than the real world, Um, meaning it's not like they're billing insurance companies. Sure. I guess is this where I'm supposed to say that it is correct. They're not doing the billing. Um, depending on the state and the workers' comp scenarios, uh-huh. sometimes they can kind of work some of the scenarios out with that. But um, you know, those, those billing questions um, in a typical clinical setting really don't apply there. Right. But right. I'm not sure if this is where I'm supposed to say that athletic trainers should be able to bill and get paid more than the physical therapist just to fire up my fellow physical therapists uh. on the, the other end. But <laughs> I, don't, I don't think so. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I. <laughs> But, you know, Mike brings up an interesting point, too, about, you know, NFL world is not real world. But when we think about the military world, that's also not what most of us experience. And the military uses all kinds of care extenders and has for, you know, forever and um, tends to have some good results with it. So I, I, I don't know. Maybe our clinical world is not the real world. I don't know. Because other other entities outside of your typical clinic are already doing this successfully. Right, right. That's very meta. So, so all these other worlds might be more real world than the real world we're in. Yeah, it's, it's like the, the matrix within the yeah, matrix. exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, looking at, and, and you know, in the military world, there's direct access. Physical therapists can order uh, diagnostic studies and things like that. They're on the obviously on the field. Sometimes frontline trauma. Um, it, this kind of the same as as per, not this obviously not exactly the same, but having that sort of trauma on the field experience like an athletic trainer. You know, so yeah. I, is that right? So I, mean, I, would, yeah. I think so. I think yeah. it's a great point. Yeah. So so yeah. Maybe maybe all the rest of us physical therapists working in our in our clinics, maybe we're not perhaps living up to, to the potential of what we could possibly be doing, given these other settings where physical therapists and athletic trainers seem to be taking on a lot more. 
I don't know. Right, and that all comes back down to legislation and insurance yeah. reimbursement and all this stuff. So, I mean, what we're talking about is people practicing at the top of their license. Sure. And, you know, like in Virginia, I am licensed as, a, as an athletic trainer as well as licensed as a physical therapist. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, what we're talking about in those other settings is people practicing at the top of their training and abilities and licensure. And I think that's what we, we all want to do. And that's probably what's best for the patient. The whole billing thing, um, you know, that kind of muddies the water sometimes. Yeah. And, and I'm not saying right or wrong or whatever, but I, I think it's about getting the person who's best for the job in that particular situation to be able to carry out those tasks. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I, I don't know, maybe Mike Copper, do you have anything else to add on that? Not really. Um, no, I, I just, no, I'm good. <laughs> can, can I throw something out to Karen? Yeah, More sure. of a question than, yeah. than an answer. Is the role of the physical therapist in a traditional clinical setting directed by our education and our goals and objectives, or is it more directed by the insurance reimbursement? Well, that's a great question. You know, I, um, in, in my setting, I don't work with insurances, so I don't, I don't take insurance. So I have, um, like I'm with, you know, with some insurances, they'll say, you'll do an evaluation, you'll send it in and their third party intermediary uh, unit, whether it be OrthoNet or, or one of these managed care things, they'll say, okay, you have eight visits to treat this patient. And so in that respect, I think, yes, your goals and your vision and your treatment is kind of dependent on the insurance company. For those people who, you know, cannot afford or do not want to pay out of pocket for, their, for the PT services. So if, if I would say in some aspects, yes, the insurance companies, maybe they do have a, a say in how you plan and, and you do your, your goal setting if that patient may only get eight visits. You know what I mean? And it stinks, yeah. it's, it's very, I think it's very unfortunate. And I think Sandy Hilton on Twitter one day put something out, I'm gonna paraphrase, of you know, we shouldn't be treating for insurance companies, we should be treating for the betterment of the patient. I'm paraphrasing yeah. that a lot. But you get the idea. Oh, definitely. <laughs> it was only 140 characters. It was already paraphrased. <laughs> I'm, I'm totally, you know, totally, totally paraphrasing that. That is not a quote from Sandy Hilton. That is the idea <laughs> from Sandy Hilton. Of, you know, and, and I think that it's, it's an issue and, and it's unfortunate, but it's, it's a fact of life, you know? So like Mike yeah. Ryan in the NFL, you don't have to deal with that. So do you, do you feel like you maybe had a more open and free practice situation there? I think so. I only worked in a clinical setting for basically three years before I started uh, right out of school and with the New York Giants. So mm -hmm. I'm not the clinical guy to really kind of shed light on that. But I can say from an athletic training perspective in the NFL, we had somewhat of an unlimited budget. The focus is on getting players better. Right. We've got a lot of MRIs in a hurry, um, some sooner than we may have. But basically, you want to be able to put on the table and say, this is exactly what you have and treat accordingly. And, you, and you're always kind of treading that line of being very aggressive in your rehab to get them back as soon as you can without going over the line and setting them back. So it, it was kind of a pure setting in a sense that insurance wasn't a factor. 
Right. Money wasn't as much of a factor. It was basically focused on that player. And unlike movies in the Hollywood would portray the fact of using a lot of medications and shooting things up, right. uh, that really was really, I can say in 20 years of the Jaguars, I can count how many players were shot up with pain medicine on one hand. Mm. And, and that's a fact I'm proud of because we utilize good physical therapy to get players better right. and, and not trying to take shortcuts. And, and I think it's a good coordination and a, and a tribute to our doctors as well because everybody was on the same page. Insurance did not come into those decision processes. Right. Yeah. So I don't know, Anne, what now I know you sort of had your cash uh, based practice and now you're at a, a different type of clinical setting. So what is your opinion on what Mike said about insurance companies? Are they sort of directing our care and goals? Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, yes, between uh, what's legislated and what's paid for by insurance, um, you know, those are real world limitations that we have. Mm -hmm. But I would hope that uh, any, any therapist who's treating a patient is still going to do what needs to be done for the best sure. of the patient and, and then advocate for that patient as much as you can. Um, I, I, you know, that's why I went cash-based. You know, that's mm -hmm. why you went cash-based. Uh, to take to take that out of the equation, um, right. so that we can really just do what's best for the patient. Uh, you know, given real insurance limitations and things like that, sometimes we have to make different decisions, or maybe not see a patient for as many visits as we'd uh -huh. like to. Maybe we don't get them as far along in their um, rehab that we'd like to before we have to discharge them. Um, but you know, that, that's just kind of what we have to do. And, and hopefully if we keep, you know, uh, Capitol Hill days coming up again for physical mm -hmm. therapists in June, you know, we keep advocating, we keep trying to change these things, keeping it focused on what's best for the patient. Um, you know, we just, by two votes, lost the, uh, the Medicare repeal of the therapy cap. Yep. Um, so, you know, these things are frustrating. It, it's part of what we have to deal with, but um, we, we have to give the best care we can with those limitations. And, you know, kind of bringing it back to PTs working with athletic trainers, you know, we can all work together. We can all make this happen. Um, it, we can be creative about how we're doing it and be a little bit more innovative to get it done. Right. Absolutely. Like Mike Hopper said, you know, he led a kettlebell class with people who you would typically not see pick up a kettlebell and did that in conjunction in with a physical therapy clinic. And I think that's great. And that's a, what a great way to utilize some, you know, post rehab um, education and a great way to utilize right. someone who has a lot of, in, in Mike's case, who has a lot of education. And if something happens, can be there to sort of triage on site if someone is, is, is injured in, in a class. So I think it's a, it's a real smart way to utilize uh, the athletic trainer in a clinical setting. Yeah, Anne, you were going to say? No, I agree. Yeah. And no, no, I, I agree. And I think, too, you know, those the women in the class, let's just say maybe some of them were patients that, uh, that you know, therapists wanted to keep seeing, but they couldn't because of insurance restrictions. Mm -hmm. Now the seamless, you know, transition of care is to, a really highly qualified athletic trainer who's going to lead a group class in a safe manner. And then if something happens and they need to come back to physical therapy, they've already got an established relationship. And so, you know, that's just good seamless continuity of care for the patient. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Mike Hopper, was that the case? Was, was it the case that they were sort of former patients who then went on to work with you in that type of a setting? 
Um, I think that most of them had been a PT patient at uh-huh. some point in time. Uh-huh. Um, a couple of them uh, had had, I think one had had either a knee replacement or a hip replacement. Uh-huh. Um, one I knew was, um, I had one in particular tell me that, A, she had quit taking all of her arthritis medication after about two months in this class. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And and this was an individual who was who was physically active as it was, um, because like I said, I, I part of my job was running this this fitness center. Uh-huh. And she was active before the kettlebell class started, but she was able to discontinue her medicine for arthritis uh, after about two months. And she also talked about what that change did to her um, her cholesterol numbers uh-huh. went way down. Uh-huh. Um, you know, and just, just something different for them. Uh, all of them came in and worked out on their own each day. You know, we had one lady, she came in six days a week and worked out. Uh, so like I said, these were, these were physically active people, but the kettlebells took it to a different level for them and took them out of their comfort zone and took them over, you know, a new step on the fitness side of things. Yeah. I mean, it's, Um, it's. Sounds great. Better. Yeah, yeah. No, it sounds to me like it's a a great way to collaborate and work together, and also keep that open line of communication between the athletic trainer and the physical therapist. Um, so it seems like a win win to me. Um, and on that note, we kind of have to start wrapping things up. So what I'd like from from you guys is to maybe just give some uh, final thoughts on the relationship between the physical therapist and the athletic trainer, and how can, how can it be strengthened and utilized for the betterment of the uh, patient or for the client? So really just kind of final thoughts on everything we talked about today. So Anne, I'm going to start with you. Sorry, you have to go first. <laughs> Thanks. Um, final thoughts. You know, I think we've just, we've talked a lot about, uh, communication between members of the patient's care team, because again, this is about the patient or the client or the athlete who has a choice in how they want to coordinate their care um, and, and the communication, but also the respect for other professionals. And I think that that's kind of what's missing sometimes in the whole discussion about uh, physical therapists and athletic trainers. You know, I hope that we've kind of helped people to understand a little bit more about what the actual training and testing and licensure and board certification is like for athletic trainers. And, um, you know, just, I think we all just need to respect each other and use, use um, our skill set as wisely as we can and bring others in when necessary. I think that's an important part of, of moving forward as a profession. Absolutely. And Mike Hopper, go ahead. Final thoughts. You know, Mike, Mike Ryan talked about it over and over again with that open communication. And I think the biggest thing is, is um, you know, in many cases, forget the letters after the name. Worry about the personality of the provider and the uh, individual skill set that each provider brings. Because you know, even between myself and my assistant, we're both licensed athletic trainers, but our skill sets are completely different. And so look at those things not the letters after the name. And remember, it's all a part of the sports medicine team or as it says, the patient care team. Sure, great. And Mike Ryan? 
I would say to have athletic trainers and physical therapists in the same setting is a great scenario and it's only going to help the players, help the athletes themselves and the patients. I think the key is to get to know the other specialty. Don't take any for granted. Don't try to lump everybody into being the same, being them an athletic trainer or physical therapist. Get to know them, ask better questions, learn to appreciate with what they have and what they're bringing to the table. Because I think when athletic trainers and physical th- therapists do that, they really learn how much smarter those other individuals are. They can learn from them. They can teach them. And I think that education of each other is a win-win scenario. It helps make things more exciting for you as, as a uh, clinical specialist, whatever the setting may be. But bottom line is it's helping the patients. And our priority should be our patients. And if we're learning from each other, bringing other specialties into the, the mix, so to speak, the patients are going to win and we're doing our job. Excellent. Very, very well said. Well, I want to thank you all so much um, and thank you all for listening. So on behalf of myself and Wendell, Mike Ryan and Mike Hopper, thank you so much for tuning in today. Have a great week and stay healthy, wealthy and smart.